Alrighty, let's do it. Welcome to a, another episode of Generation One with your boy Cody Lacey. I decided it was time we traveled north of the border, go on a little Canadian adventure, and for all of those of you who have been thinking, dear God, stop talking about sheep, uh, here you go. We're getting into some cattle, and not only cattle, Canadian cattle, which I think is far more exotic and exciting. Um, I am bringing to you an operation that I actually had not had the pleasure of knowing until I met through my dear friends, Sammy and Pete Cherrier of Ledgerwood, Gelby, and Rafter, C. Red Angus. Um, Twin View Livestock by Joe and Aaron. Um, a dynamic duo. I'm really excited for this one. I think it's going to be a great time of talking Canadian cattle, comparing, contrasting, and a time of learning for all of us because I will tell you that my knowledge of Canadian cattle and the livestock industry in general up there is very minimal. So we're going to sit back, listen together. Before we do that, as always, a beautiful shout out to my incredible wife, Sue Ellen, my beautiful wife, I mean my beautiful daughter, excuse me, Dallas, and Riley Box, who holds it all down for me at home and to big country media. Without you guys, nothing in my life would be possible. So with that being said, let's get into it. Well, welcome on, Joe and Aaron. I appreciate you guys carving time out to get on and talk to me about the Canadian scene, what's going on up there, because like I said in my intro, I have absolutely no clue, um, and this is going to be educational for everybody listening to this, me included. Why don't we go ahead and start off the podcast with you guys giving us a background of your individual uh, journeys into the cattle industry up in Canada, as well as uh, the operation that the two of you have built together. And Aaron, why don't you go ahead and take that away for us? Sure. Thanks, Cody. Uh, so I grew up in a, near a small town in southern Alberta, um, which is one of the western provinces. Uh, so it was a mixed family farm, mostly um, my focus always was on the cattle. We did have Greenland as well, but I always enjoyed the cattle more. Uh, we just had commercial cattle to begin with. Uh, was very involved in 4-H, both steers and heifers, and also the horse 4-H for a little bit. But I was always just very cow crazy. Um, any chance I got, I was doing something with the cows. Um, I played pork and everything, but the cows were what really drove me and what I really enjoyed. So about my early teens is when we kind of started uh, using the Galvies in our commercial herd. And I kind of got interested in the purebred side of things. So uh, myself, as long as, along with my parents, started to buy a few purebred cows just to play around with. And it was just kind of my push to go more of the purebred route because I really enjoyed the, you know, the showing and the promoting and the, the breeding and everything that comes along with the, with the purebred side of things. So when I was done high school, I went and did two years of college at in Old, which is one of kind of the two major um, ag colleges in Western Canada. Uh, so after completing that, I came back to the family farm full time. 
And it was really my push there um, going forward to develop the purebred herd, as well as, you know, um, improve the commercial herd at the same time. But uh, it was kind of, that was what really drove me to go, come back to the family farm and, and go, um, kind of go that route. So, um, so I was there for about six years before I met Jill. So I'll maybe turn it over to him and he can give you a little bit of a, a background and then carry on from there. Yeah. So it, interestingly, um, Aaron and I have very similar backgrounds in many ways. Um, I grew up on a family farm as well in southern Saskatchewan, which is another one of the western provinces for the geographically challenged Americans listening. Um, so we, I grew up with uh, commercial salmon tall cattle, um, a little bit of grain land, but similar to Aaron in that, you know, we were primarily cattle focused. Um, I had two brothers, we were all very involved in 4-H, and then we sort of got involved into the junior salmon tall world a little bit. And we started buying some purebred heifers. And with my two brothers, uh, we built our own purebred semitol operation, which is still going today. Um, and so having three boys on the farm, um, it was tough to sort of know who and how three boys could live a life on that one family farm. And it's, that's something that I think a lot of farm families face. Um, and so I was the middle brother. I was, uh, I guess, <laughs> looking back now, you could have probably called me the black sheep. Um, I was into athletics and stuff like that. And I, uh, when I finished high school, I left um, and went actually to North Dakota. Uh, I was on a track and cross-country scholarship uh, in Bismarck, North Dakota. And I got a teaching degree. Um, and from uh, North Dakota, I actually went to Wyoming and taught school for two years. Um, and then I moved back to Canada and I was teaching full time. I was still connected with the farm, um, primarily like on a genetic selection and promotional sort of basis, although I was not there for any of the day to day stuff. So um, then, you know, I was teaching in Calgary full time um, and Aaron and I met and he was about two hours away outside of Calgary. So I was spending weekends at, uh, at his farm and that was sort of my first exposure uh, really to the ins and outs of the Galway breed. Um, and, you know, I quickly sort of fell in love with with the cattle and and obviously more than the cattle. <laughs> and, you know, very quickly in, in Aaron and I's relationship, we had a very clear vision for where we wanted to head and what we thought and hoped was possible. Um and, you know, like I said before, working on family farms is, is tough. And, you know, we're not unique in that, I don't think. And, you know, our vision and the plans and the path that we wanted to take were unique to us. And so we sort of set out um, to create that on our own. So although we both had uh, farming backgrounds and pre-red cattle experience, um, we stepped out and we made our own path and we sort of, we moved back to uh, be closer to my family. Uh, and the biggest factor in that was land availability and price. Um, we could not afford to buy land where we were, and we certainly couldn't have made cattle pay for it. Um, and so we moved. Um, it was about a five-hour move uh, from where we were. Um, and we kept coming back to that, that vision of what we shared together and where we wanted to head. And... 
I think anytime you have a plan for where you're, you want to go or where you see yourself, you really have no idea when you're, you know, that boots on the ground kind of approach of, of day in and day out. When you're pretty sure you know where you're headed, in the big picture, you don't. You don't actually know. And so the really, the validating thing for us is when things sort of started to fall into place. And, um, you know, some of those big validating experiences for us have been, um, you know, we've really enjoyed a lot of success in the show ring. Um, one of the major shows up here in Canada is Agribition. Um, for anyone listening, if you ever get the chance to come to Agribition, it's a phenomenal livestock show experience. We highly recommend it. Um, you know, at, at any show, there's sort of, you know, your, your big awards, your, your champion bull and reserve, your champion female and reserve. And then we do a, it's called the premier breeder and exhibitor where you accumulate points for your results. And, um, several years running now, we've been named the premier breeder and exhibitor in the Galve breed. Uh, two years ago, we had the champion and reserve champion female as well as the champion bull. Um, and so that was a big one for us. Another really validating thing for us has been uh, a female sale that we've created here. We hosted in our yard. It's uh, kind of a unique um, <clears throat> setup, and it's been really, really successful. We've, we're coming into our third one later in October. Um, and sort of the, the third thing that's been so validating for us is that there's been new people looking at the Galway breed for the very, very first time. And there's a lot of young people getting excited about the breed. And we're really humbled when those young producers who are interested in Galway cattle give us a call. And whether they buy from us or not, the fact that they call and they've noticed what Aaron and I are doing and they've heard the, the Twinview name and they've seen our, our branding and stuff like that, you know, that really tells us that the the day-to-day in and out of farm living is working and that that path that we have set out on and the vision we had for ourselves we're working on it and we're getting there and we're gaining some ground and so those those things have been really validating for us and you know I think you know how how we actually came in contact with you Cody is through really great mutual friends that we both share in Washington there and uh Pete and Sammy have bought a couple of bulls from us now and vice versa. And, you know, the people that you, you meet in this industry are so, so critical in, in our work. And, you know, the, the relationships are some of our most important um, takeaways from that vision that we set out with years ago now. So. Well, I love that. And both of you guys are speaking right into my soul on a lot of points here. One, I love, Joe, that you touched on that you were one of three boys. I look at so many families, you know, that have three, four, five, however many, you know, um, you know, some people get wild and have like 110 children. And it's like, okay, (laughs) you know, they can't all And some operations do, you know, some operations grow and expand. Uh, to allow that next generation to come into the family operation. Um, And some of them, it's just not feasible, depending on what the operation looks like. So I think it's really cool um, that you were able to look within and see that and say, hey, I've got to, you know, if I want to do this, uh, you know, I should go out and carve out my own niche in the world. Uh, I think that that's really impressive, and that speaks to a lot of people in that situation. Um, The other thing I think is really important that I think really uh, touches home with me is – 
whether it's the person you're married to, dating, or your business partner, sharing the same vision. I think that that's so important that we share the vision that the people that do business with us and involved are on the day-to-day because, uh, you know, if you can't be working towards the same end goals and the same vision as a couple or as a group, uh, it makes it very difficult. So I think that's amazing that you touched on that. I also am listening to this, Joe, and hearing that you went to North Dakota in like Wyoming. I'm hoping to God that you traveled elsewhere in the United States of America because that is not no offense to the three people that listen to North from North Dakota. I love you, but that not the most exciting place to come to the big lights of America. And I know you guys have been to Denver and stuff before, which that's exciting. So um, yeah, that's that's quite the intro to America. But um, with that being said, um, as we move on to our next question here. Uh, what factors led you guys to choose Gelvy? Because if anyone listening in America knows of Gelvy, but you know it's not one of probably the top four or five breeds here in America. Would you say that it's a lot more prominent in Canada, or uh, what's kind of the status of Gelvy in Canada, and what what really led you guys into choosing that breed? Well, I guess we're very similar in what the breeds that are used up here. So we have our big four. The, there's the Angus, the Semitel, Charlie, and Hereford. Those are the big four. And then you've got the, the breeds that are next to them in numbers, and the Gelbys are part of that. Um, so so growing up, I ne- we never saw any Gelby cattle. Like, they weren't around. Um, we didn't know what they, you know, you just didn't see them. So at the time, um, when I was growing up, we had a commercial herd, predominantly Charley Cross. I know, Cody, you have some Charley background, so I'm sure you and me could compare notes about how, you know, showing white steers is a real joy. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> so we had a, a commercial herd that was kind of a mixed bag of a lot of different breeds. And that's because, you know, we bounced around between breeds and we were having a challenge finding a breed that really encompassed everything we were looking for. You know, we appreciated the the milking ability of the Semitol cattle. We appreciated the the performance in the Charlet. We appreciated, the, you know, the the Cavanies and the Red Angus. And so we ended up with this herd of this hodgepodge, dip, you know, different um, types of cattle. And we were looking for a breed that we could turn one bull out with all those cattle and get the most bang for our buck and um, consistency in that calf crop. And the Gelby is where we went. Um, so what we, where we kind of got the Gelbys is when I was a kid, probably about 10, um, I actually wrote letters to all the breed associations and asked for information back on all the breeds. Cause if anybody that knew me at that time, I was cow crazy. Um, so we got all this information back and it was the Gelby breed that really stuck out because there was also, um, uh, research to back up claims instead of just saying they're the best at this that and the other thing there was actually research um that they could back that up with so we decided to look that direction we found a gelby breeder not far from us and we went down and toured the cow herd and it was like okay these are the kind of cows we want you know they're the right size they're not mammoth like we you know some of our charlie and semitol cattle could get uh, you know they weren't that extreme frame um, but they still had some muscle pattern and some bone and, 
um, and good udders and good feet. And we're like, okay, this is the type of cow we want to make. So we went and purchased our first bull that year. And then just for the fun of it, we ended up going to their female sale in the fall. And of course, came home with five heifers. Um, so from there, you know, we there was no intention of jumping into the purebred scene at all at that point. Uh, it was just a kind of a case that we picked up some, some really nice heifers for just a little bit more over um, commercial price, but they were just beautiful females. They were just, like we said before, exactly what we were looking for in a mother cow. Um, so, you know, a couple of years down the road, we, you know, bought the odd purebred here and there. Mostly I would buy them for, or me or my siblings would buy them for 4-H projects. And, you know, so we had kind of had a few of them kicking around, and we finally kind of said, you know what, this breed is something that can benefit people outside of just us, because it really is, I think, what a lot of people are looking for in cattle. So um, made kind of the jump, and um, with me kind of the push behind the purebred thing, like, because uh, it it's always kind of been my passion, the record-keeping, the marketing, the, you know, coming up with meetings has kind of always been my passion. So. Um, but my parents um, jumped in too, and we kind of bought our first big package of cows. And, um, you know, a couple of years after that, uh, started the bull sale, and it just kind of evolved from that. And it's been really fun. Um, another thing that I love about the breed is some of the amazing people um, that we've met. Um, right, um, right when we were still new in the breed, and we were really doing the purebred thing too serious at the time, um, somebody we bought a bull from invited me to help promote it. Agribition, so the the show that our our major show up here that uh, Joe had mentioned, and and the people that I met at Agribition that first year, and just uh, you know the knowledge I gained and those relationships that I built there, just kind of like solidified that feeling of wanting to be involved in the breed. So um, so from there, it's it's just kind of evolved, and still today I appreciate you know the cattle for how sound and functional they are, you know, the maternal capabilities, the fact that you don't have to give up, um, you know, calving you for performance and vice versa. And I really do feel it's kind of a breed that's um, underutilized in the cattle industry. So uh, there's some days I kind of say, you know, we're kind of putting it on ourselves to kind of change that and, you know, give the breed a little more light and um, promote it a little more um, like it should be. So. Well, I love that, and I can tell you Sammy will love that even more. You championing the <laughs> You are quite the ambassador, and obviously she is too. Um, I, you know, I agree. The Gelby breed isn't something that I didn't really grow up around either until I became really good friends with Sammy, who then later ended up marrying our friend Pete. And, um, you know, what a functional type of breed. You know, a lot of people like to compare it to – um, the Simmental breed. And I think that there are some similarities mm -hmm. between the two. And I think that a lot of people um, that are utilizing Simmental genetics right now, or even Charlet genetics, honestly, um, I would encourage them to try a Gelby bull. Maybe even if you don't want to dive all the way in on that, buy a Gelby female, honestly, breed her to whatever you're using right now, an Angus bull or whatever you're using because I think they're so versatile. You know, breed them, try them, see that calf, and see what that calf looks like compared to your other ones because I can tell you when you go down 
um, to not only just the Ledgerwood Gelby operation, but her father's commercial operation there at Ledgerwood Ranches. You know, they run about 700 plus cows and those calves, those Gelby calves, they just have a different look, a different hardiness to them. And I, I can say too, I am mm -hmm. also a big fan of the Gelby breed. With that being said, I think it's really what I'm picking up on here. And what's really interesting to me is that you guys um, are doing sale, your own sales. You're doing sales there at the place. I know that you're marketing at different venues as well. Um, and in America, and I'm sure it's the same way everywhere because humans are just insecure as it is. But people are afraid to get out there and they're really afraid to dive in and host their own production sale or host something at their house because, you know, it goes back to high school and we're all afraid, you know, that the cool kids aren't going to show up and nobody's going to come and buy our cattle. I've never really been like that. I'm like dive, you know, head first into the deep end. And if it turns into a dumpster fire, so be it. But most people are terrified of that. And I love that you guys, um, not as a newer operation, because you guys have been working towards this for a long time. I love that uh, you are going out there making a name for yourself and really not hesitating, at least from my perspective, um, to really get out there and show your guys' self off. So when you start breeding cattle and getting ready for that next step of your program and also back at the beginning when you were first beginning, uh, what are some key factors that you guys took in as far as marketing, uh, selecting cattle that you think would sell well? Uh, what's your thought process behind that? You know, it's interesting that you you talk about, you know, the potential of things turning into a dumpster fire. And I think, you know, the, the approach that we've taken is that we are going to have dumpster fires, absolutely but there are dumpster fires and we lit them, but we can put them out too. And so we really take the approach that because we've gone on this journey to do what Aaron and I want and create our own vision for the direction of this program, we said from day one, we're going to fail. We're going to, you know, go up in flames numerous times, but we're also going to succeed. And in both cases, those successes and those hardships belong to us. And we can't blame anyone or we can't give anyone credit other than ourselves when those things happen. And so when, when we try something new, it really is a leap of faith. And the only thing that you're guaranteed is that the work you put in is what you're going to get out of it. And so I think the, the big answer to your question about how do we approach meetings and marketing and stuff like that the answer is hard work. Um, I give all credit for our matings to Aaron. Aaron is a creative genius when it comes to matching cattle. And I think one of those things that, it doesn't make us unique, but in some cases it does. When we're breeding cows, and that's what we're doing right now, we're sitting discussing cows and matings. We look at each individual cow just as that. Every cow is an individual. And we don't worry about, you know, pasture groupings and herd bulls and stuff like that. We look at individual cows and where we need to take that female. We want to bring out her strengths. We want to diminish her weaknesses. And because we have such an extensive AI and embryo program, we're really able to do that. Um, we have a lot of females that um, are, are good cows, but they have things about them that we want to change. And so those are the females that we put embryos in. Uh, we flush a lot of females every year, um, which really, you know, allows us to focus on cow families 
and expand cow families rapidly. Um, we take the very best females we can find in this breed. We flush them to bulls who are backed by exceptional mother cows and exceptional grandmothers. And we build those, those layers of cow families on top of each other. And that really helps us build consistency in our product and in our, in our cow herd. Um, one of the things, you know, we talk about the, the differences between Canada and the U.S., and there are some. You know, we just parked our dog sled for the evening. and um, <laughs> But one of the big ones for us is the, the use of EPDs. Um, when, when we talk to people south of the border, EPD selection is one of their primary tools in selecting cattle. And we're really fortunate that we haven't gone down that path as a country. I would say generally in Canada, EPDs are simply one small factor in selection. Um, so we look at cows based on phenotype and pedigree and production history. And then we look at EPDs. They're just one very small piece of the puzzle. We believe that you cannot judge cattle on paper. And, you know, we see a lot of that happening, you know, and I'll be honest, south of the border. You know, there's a lot of programs that have numbers just, quite frankly, out the ass. And, you know, they've given up some of the other things that we value maybe more than those numbers on paper. So we, like I said, we really look at foot and utter structure in our females is paramount for us. Uh, phenotype and pedigree and production and you know we combine all those things and we create the individual matings for those females. Um, we use a lot of our own bulls um, and part of that is because we're a small breed and we do struggle sometimes to find the right bull based on you know what our next steps are. So we use a lot of our own bulls because that allows us to combine more of our best cow families together on the other side of the pedigree. Um, and that's something that we really believe strongly in. Um, our belief from a marketing point of view is that if we wouldn't use a bull ourselves, we've got no business selling him. And that is something that maybe sets us apart from a lot of programs because there could be, I would venture to say that there's a lot of programs that could come into our bullpen early summer and, you know, they, there's 30 bulls in this pen. Well, for us, there's only 20 because we're going to cut 10 more out for various reasons. And we're really, really hard on them. Um, and, and, you know, the, from the marketing perspective, that allows us a lot of freedom because we can be very upfront saying, you know what, we love this bull for this reason and we would use them because of these factors. Um, and if there's ever a factor that we wouldn't use a bull, there's a really high chance he's not going to be for sale. Um, marketing for us is a 365-day-a-year commitment. Um, it's not just when the female sales happening in October. It's not just when we're selling bulls in March. Um, we're constantly selling the story and the idea of our program. We're constantly selling our vision. And we work really hard every day to make sure that we're keeping that TwinView name and the TwinView logo and the brand that we're creating out there. Um, part of that for us is extremely high-quality quality photos and videos. Um, we do all of that work ourselves in-house. Um, it is um, often a bone of contention in our relationship um, because it's really easy to hate the person taking the picture when you're the person getting the ears or moving the heifer or whatever it is. But we also know that we know our cattle better than anyone. Uh, we've taught ourselves what needs to 
what good pictures need to look like for, from our perspective, and we do all of that work ourselves. So that's a big one. Doing that work ourselves also lets us um, take pictures year-round. We picture mother cows all summer. Every time we go to pasture to check cows, we take the camera. Um, that's when our cows look the best, is out on grass. We picture young females later in the fall, uh, bulls usually January, February. Uh, herd bulls will be done right away here before they go to grass. And doing that work ourselves lets us really bring out the best in those cattle at the right time for them. Um, on the marketing side, we we do show cattle, as we've discussed a little bit. Um, I you know going back to the perception of the Galway breed, both in Canada and the U.S., um, it isn't one of the major breeds, and we like Aaron said, we take it on ourselves often to to change that. Um, and so when we show cattle. Our mission is to be over-prepared. We spend literally hundreds and hundreds of hours getting cattle ready to take to shows every fall. Um, our, our primary goal is to let our cattle do the talking. We don't want to tell our buyers why the cattle are good. We want those cattle to hit them so hard the first time they see them that we've got their attention and they're coming to us. And part of that is being over-prepared. You know, there's been people that really have questioned us and said we've probably got rocks on our hands for putting the hours that we do into getting show cattle ready. But it's paid off. You know, we've enjoyed a lot of success in the show ring. And, you know, show results are only one small piece of the puzzle for us. Um, we only show the cattle that we would be breeding at home. We don't have a separate pen of cattle we breed for the show ring. And we really, it's very humbling when, you know, the cattle that we're breeding every day are achieving some success in the showing and in other arenas too. Um, you know, and you know, you combine all those things and then it comes down to how do you put that out in the world? Uh, we do a lot of work on social media. Facebook is our number one go-to. Um, we, we always plan on doing a minimum of a post a week. And in peak season, it's more. Sometimes it's every day or every other day. Um, into the summer when things are a little quieter, it'll be at least once a week. And it might just be some cows on a pasture. But our, you know, bringing that all back together, it's all about the story. And it might just be the story of our day-to-day. But people connect to stories. And if we don't give people our story, we don't give them any way to connect. And, you know, once people connect to your story, then you can start to build those personal and professional relationships with people. But it all comes back to story and, you know, our cattle tell our story and, you know, our, our role really is to let the cattle do the talking. Wow. Well, I always knew Canadians were more evolved than us until I heard this (laughs) and I realized that we're just like sitting here eating a McDonald's and drinking a Coors Light looking like fools. Um, because I love everything that you said. Um, couple things we have to touch on. One, Thank you for calling out EPDs in America. I am 1,000% on the same page as you in Canada when it comes to that. If I try to have someone show me one more cat-ass, narrow-made, terrible-ass Angus bull and say, yeah, but its yearling (laughs) weight's like a 569,000 because they just get bigger and bigger numbers every year, you know, and it's like, yeah, but it weighs like 35 pounds, you know, it's like, what the hell does that even mean? And then to all the shady bitches out there, you know who you are if you're listening to this that have the contemporary groups because you know in america you can throw together a big contemporary group and you can throw this bull you're excited about and all the 
all the calves can be 850 pounds, you know, and be cut out the side. But by God, you know, if you play your numbers right, you can make him a calving ease bull. So I think it's, it's, it's absolutely insane to me. Um, and another thing that I think is really important that you touched on that I think is a way bigger thing in Canada than America is in America, what we like to do is when we lose a show and we want to be really bitter and sour about it, um, is we say, well, we don't raise show cattle. You know, we're raising production yeah. cattle, and that's why we didn't win. When it's like, no, uh, your animal's just not as good because it's not like we're raising different species of animal here. It's like a good cow that looks good in the ring um, and is designed right should also be able to go climb the side of a mountain, have a calf, and physiologically be able to do that. So that's also insane, and I'm glad that you guys are a lot more on top of it than we are down here because we just like to use that as an excuse. And then going back to your marketing, um, two things that really hit me hard was one that you said it's our dumpster fire. We lit it and we can put it out. I think that that should be engraved on a plaque, put on a t-shirt, like written on the ceiling above your bed because that is so true. We are all so afraid to fail when it's like all you have to do when you fail is learn from your failure, pick yourself up, and keep on moving forward. I don't know why we're so afraid. I'm not. I Like I said, I love diving into a good old-fashioned dumpster fire and mingling around and see what I can figure out, you know, so I'm here for that. And the last thing I want to really touch on is about building a story because I think we're getting to a point, and I can't speak for Canada, but in America where – there's a lot of good livestock out there, and I would imagine in the Gelby breed in 10 years from now, you know, there's going to be a lot of really good Gelbys out there, some big-name sires. I think it'll keep growing and evolving, and the people that are going to do the most business don't have to be the people with the best cattle. It has to be the people, I believe, that are relatable and projecting a story to consumers and clients uh, that makes people feel connected to what they're doing. A lot of us that raise livestock full-time, you know, we don't get off the ranch much. And so if we can look on Facebook or have a conversation with somebody and make a genuine connection with them, uh, I think that that's really what sells cattle. And that's what we do here at Gold Standard Livestock is it to us, it's not about the sheep. Yes, we want to raise the best sheep we can. And we've got into the Red Angus now. Um, it's not about the livestock. We want to make lifelong friends, clients that become family. Um, that's what it's oriented towards. And I think that selling your story and really staying in touch with people is the best way to do that. So I love that you guys touched on that. Um, when we talk about... Yes, and you know, Cody, if you don't mind, I, I just thank you for being even more blessed than I was on the TV thing. We scratch our heads so often on the ETD side of things. And I'll say it again, especially when we look at American cattle. They've got numbers out the ass, but we've forgotten all the other pieces. And, like, I just, it's so frustrating for us a lot of times because, you know, a, a prime example I'll give you is a bully race named The Boxer who became national champion bull up here. He was reserved national champion twice. Um, he, was an integral part of our breeding program, it still is, his numbers tanked when we went and did this genomically enhanced business and everything else. And, you know, we kept coming back to, we know this bull is going to work. We know he is. And the numbers didn't say he would, but, you know, we've got people using Boxer on heifers with caution, I'll admit, with caution, but using them on heifers. 
and his calves are consistently at the top of the, the pen for leaning and performance values. So our, our belief in our mating decisions is the hard evidence. Look at what's actually happening in front of you versus what the paper says may potentially happen. I a thousand percent agree with you. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree with you. And in fact, when we started getting into the red Angus here about six months ago and buying up females and we just bought a new herd bull and, um, you know, I said from the very beginning, I was like, I'm not even looking, I could care less about numbers, honestly, because like I said, especially in America, I don't know about up there, but they're so easily manipulated and, you know, nobody goes in, like I was saying, you know, admittedly, so, and I would even say this, you know, so say I have an incredible donor, I spend $100,000 on her, she's national champion female, she goes and has her first calf, you know, and it's 103 pounds, do you, which I know you guys raise a lot bigger calves up there, which I also don't get me on that, because I think is a better idea than these dinks we're raising and calling calvingies down here, but um, it's like, yeah, we can make you, another, we can make a whole segment on yeah, that, yeah, we'll do an entire <laughs> another podcast on calvingies and how that's garbage, too but it's like do you honestly think i'm gonna put 103 it's like i'm probably gonna put 99 you know because and it's not because i'm ashamed of the 103 pound calf it's because there's a thousand old timers down here who are saying i would never have anything over 100 pounds you know so it's it's all so manipulated so i think smoke and mirrors in really a joke and so when we started out we said no we're raising cattle that have real performance data something i can write down on a paper and say this is his yearling weight i don't care what his yearling weight epd is this is his yearling weight when we went to buy our bull i mean he's a huge yearling weight huge weaning weight you know nice not i'm not going to say calving ease but you know he was calved without any kind of complications at a reasonable birth weight and um i could i i'll be honest we have bought and now I'm headed to pick him up tomorrow and pay for him. I have not even looked at his EPDs yet because it it doesn't really matter to me, to be honest. But I'm sure there's like a thousand people that will listen to this and absolutely hate me saying all of that. And to those people, know that I do not care. So, um, all right. So that being said, let's get to money because this is my favorite. One of my favorite things to always talk about with people half because I'm a nosy bitch and I just want to know uh, what people are doing. But also because for those of you that are wanting to become a generation one or your generation two, three, four, five, and you're looking to branch out away from your family operation, if we're honest, the, the main thing that determines what we're able to do and how we do it is always money. Uh, that old ball and chain really dictates a lot of what we do. And so for you guys, um, when you look to invest and when you guys were starting out, uh, what were some big factors that you guys took into mind when selecting cattle, marketing cattle, uh, and really building your operation? So both of us, or neither of us, um, came from wealthy families or never we've never had a big chunk of change to invest. So we've always been, you know, of the mind that we have to be really, really careful where we invest our money because we don't have a lot of it to throw around, um, which is, I think, helped us. And I think it's built a better cow herd in the long run. Um, and another thing I want to touch on, yes, you know, it's important to where you invest your money, but investing your time in doing your research and, you know, figuring out the right genetics that are going to work for you and talking to people and, and gaining information is just as important as where you put your money. Putting your time where it needs to go is 
just as important. So around here, we don't have fancy equipment or a fancy show barn or um, anything like that. It's pretty bare bones. And a big part of that is because when we went out on our own, we couldn't afford all the, the fancy stuff. And we couldn't afford a show barn or, a, you know, a big fancy truck or a lot of those pieces. So what we were really conscious of when we built our place was to purchase things that were, you know, in good working order that we could we could work with. You know, there's a lot of times we've got to put a little more work into things than if we had you know, nicer machinery or bigger machinery or, you know, better facilities. Um, but we were really conscious of making sure that we didn't overextend ourselves in purchasing um, and then, you know, going to suck because of it. So that was one thing that we really were conscious of when we were building our place and, and we still do. Um, so in terms of when we're going to purchase cattle, um, especially somebody just starting out, don't keep out on hurdles. Like, you know what, you can go and you can build a pretty decent cow herd, not necessarily going out and buying the expensive ones, but, you know, sticking to your guns and finding, you know, the those basics that are really important to you. You know, they maybe don't need the bells and whistles to start off if you're like us and, and didn't have a big uh, wealth of money to spend at the, at the beginning. You can go through and, you know, find some pretty decent females that will work for you, but then don't cheap out on a bull. Go and find the bull that you need that's going to advance your program, and that money um, spent on that herd sire goes a lot farther. In the same token, if you're um, you know want to go down the AI route, route um, you know finding semen that's gonna that's gonna work for you is really really important. Um, the other thing um, I'd like to emphasize too is. The lead-off female, the lead-off bull, or the most expensive animals you can find aren't always the best ones for your operation. Um, there's lots of times we go to a sale and we go through the through the offering, and you know that first lead-off one that you know everybody knows is going to sell for a bunch of money isn't necessarily the one that's going to work for us. You know, our our cattle, we, where we run our cattle, you know, there's lots of hills, there's lots of miles. We're in a fairly dry area, so our cattle got to get out and move, and you know. Um, some of our priorities are maybe a little different than others. So I guess my advice would be is to figure out what you want to, the type of cattle you want to raise before you go, um, before you go to purchase and then invest your money just in the type of cattle that are going to work for you, not necessarily the ones that are um, going to go out and, you know, be the high sellers. Um, you can go back and you look over, um, if you visit our website, there's our, our donor dam list there and, a lot of those donor dams, either them or their mothers or grandmothers, where they started from, we didn't spend a pile of money on. There are some that we have, but um, a lot of them came from very humble beginnings. You know, they might have been a third of the way through a sale order, um, but they were the type of cattle that were going to work for us, and um, and that's why we brought them home, and um, that's um, where we uh, where we decided to spend our money. Um, so but a good example of that, and this is kind of a story, and, and going back to that um, uh, humble beginnings kind of thing, so uh, tell you a story, so back when um, the mad cow crisis hit, so of course the borders were closed, and that was very detrimental to uh, the Canadian cattle industry. 
because we rely on exports to other countries. So when we couldn't export um, our beef, our cattle industry just went into a tailspin. At that time, that's when I was going to college. So I had my college paid for between money I'd saved up and um, another thing. So I went out and actually borrowed money or used my student loan to purchase cattle. And I was able to go and purchase purebred cows at that time um, at a dispersal. I paid, the most I paid was like 900 bucks for cows. So one of those cows, I only paid $800 for, and she was coming up for a second calf, calf, but she was good. And even in that sale, you know, there's lots of cows that sold higher, but there's this group of females that were the type of cows that I could use for a base. So instead of going there and buying three cows, I bought seven. But in there, one of those cows, I only paid $800 for. Um, I had her for 11 years. She gave me 11 calves. and um, I sold her as a call cow for more than I bought her for. And it was actually her grandson is the boxer bull that we was the national champion for us. And her direct daughter is a cow we flushed. So, you know, going to those sales and looking for the type of cow that worked for you, not necessarily in your type, as opposed to those, you know, high selling type of female is a good way to start. If you're on a tighter budget like us, that's a good way to start as opposed to, you know, going and putting all your eggs in one basket or, you know, chasing fads, you know, find the cow that works for you and, and, you know, and find those ones that, you know, don't necessarily need to break the bank, but they're going to work well. Um, another thing that, and, you know, we do work off the farm. So Joe is a substitute teacher. Um, he doesn't work full time anymore just because it doesn't work great for our schedule. So, He's very busy substitute teaching. Um, I also quite often will help local farmers during seeding and harvest when we have extra time and, and it's kind of their busy time. So, um, you know, I think that's the reality for a lot of young people in agriculture, or even, you know, not necessarily young people in agriculture, is having that off-farm income, even if it just pays the, you know, your living expenses and even if the farm, you know, breaks even every year, <laughs> that's a win sometimes. So, um so that's another thing for us that's very important is having that outside income just to just to keep the wheels moving and everything working well. Well, I love that. And I think that's something you said in the beginning that I think is so important and I probably need to include in this question is is investing your time. I mean, obviously money will come and go and you can always make more money and you can always spend more money, but the one thing that is finite is our time. And I find myself wishing all the time that there were 48 hours in a day instead of 24 because, you know, there's so many things you want to get done and there's always more work to be done on a livestock operation. And so I think how we choose to invest our time um, is equally as important in how, as how we choose to invest our money. And I tell people that when I say, you know, making that leap, even if you're scared financially to do this full time, um, you are you are able to so much further invest your time into your program, and your program will expand and explode so much quicker than trying to split your time with a million different things. So I think that that's really incredible, as well as uh, touching on buying the, the buying the livestock that are right for you. I watch way too many up and comers. Uh, pick out ones they like in the sale. Then they'll go to the sale and the breeder will try to sway them towards the high dollar one and say, oh, no, no, this is the best one. You have to, and 
I'm guilty of that. When I started in the Charlay cattle, I listened to way too many people tell me what to do, and I made a lot of bad breeding decisions and a lot of bad purchases, uh, when in reality, I should have trusted my gut. And when we got into the sheep, I said, you know, I don't care what people think the trend is, what they think the best one is, I'm going to pick the type of sheep that I like to raise. And I've just really stuck to my guns, and I can tell you it's been so much more rewarding. And sometimes to get the one that I think I need, I have to buy the high seller. And sometimes I buy one of the lowest sellers, depending on what I think I need. So sticking to your guns, I think, is so, so important when building your program um, from the ground up. So I, I love everything that you said there. I'm adding this new segment because I think a lot of times we really get into just talking livestock. We get caught up in the workings of that. But I really want to branch out a little bit and have each of you tell us a little bit something. It could be livestock, not livestock related about you that the average listener or maybe the average Canadian who does know you guys uh, doesn't know about you. Uh, so I'll start this one off. Um a lot of people don't realize is how much of an introvert I am. Um, I am perfectly fine during calving season when I have a perfectly good excuse not to be off the farm for two months and can just be in my own little bubble. I am perfectly okay with that. Uh, you know, I can be out in social situations and I can be perfectly fine with not saying anything. I can have a perfectly good time just listening and taking in, you know, everybody else's company. I don't need to be you know, in the conversation all the time. Um, that being said, you get me talking about cows and it's hard to shut me up. So um, I think that's a lot of people that know me that they see that side of me, but a lot of them don't realize just how quiet and um, reserved I can be and just be totally fine to be a hermit, basically. And, you know, when, when Aaron and I, uh, when I first met Aaron and we were in social situations, it was really tough for me because I don't shut my mouth nine times out of ten. I love to be the center of the social circle. I love to have people listen to me. I'm very comfortable talking to a thousand people at a time. And when Aaron and I would go out into social situations, it was really tough for me because he would be quiet. He would be just observing and watching. And I was always worried that he wasn't having a good time. And as an extrovert, I'm an extreme extrovert, um, it, it was tough for me in the beginning to sort of find, you know, the balance between Aaron being introverted and me being extroverted. So when Aaron's at home during calving for two months, I'm off the farm. I'm gone to work teaching. I, uh, you know, even if you go back to before we met, I did a lot of travel and stuff like that. And yeah, I did see more than North Dakota and Wyoming in the U.S. Um, but, you know, even right down to the things that we drink. I'm a vodka drinker. I call it God's water. Aaron is a rye drinker. So do you Americans, but whiskey. <laughs> um, but we firmly believe that it's our differences that really uh, lead us to a lot of our successes. We complement each other in really a vast amount of ways. Um, we make a really good team because we see things from different perspectives, and we often have very different opinions on things. I'll be honest, there's a lot of days that Aaron like, opened his eyes at me, and honestly, I'm sure he's thinking, like, what the hell planet have you come from? Because I just blabbed on about something else that I've thought up in my head, and he's left to pick up the pieces and find the best of that. So I think our, our, our differences really are what 
have led up to a lot of the successes we've enjoyed. I love that. And I think that that speaks to everybody. Um, as far as couples or business partners, I think that it's our strength and strengths and our weaknesses that really uh, make us unique. And if we find people that complement that, I'm the same way when we go to my wife is pretty social, especially if you get some booze in her, then she's like extremely social and down for a heart to heart. But, um, you know, I'm typically the one who's kind of the mouthpiece like you, Joe. I, I never know when to shut up. Um, it's an obnoxious quality of mine, but also, you know, part of also getting our name out there. And so we both have our different strengths and weaknesses. And especially when I think it comes to marketing cattle, it's good to have those differences because the two of you are able to speak to different crowds in different groups uh you know when you have maybe a couple come up and they're visiting the ranch you know you can really connect with one or the other because of those those different personalities and i i think that makes us stronger i think that makes us more marketable as well so i enjoy both of those answers thoroughly as we get back to our last question here of the night, and the one that I have started asking everybody is, if you could look back and speak to the 18-year-old versions of yourself, because that's really when we start thinking we're adults, which we're not at all, but we really think we are, and we start having visions of our life um, and where we're going to go, and we're graduating high school, what piece of pieces of advice would you guys give yourselves if you could go back in time? I guess my would, mine would be saying yes to my gut more often. It seems, uh, or for me at that age anyway, and I think that it might be part of that introvert type uh, personality, but um, I would often, you know, my gut would be telling me to do something, but my mind would be telling me, no, you know what, there's, um, you know, there's too much to do at home, or that's a waste of time, or that's not going to work, or you know, that's going to cost too much money or whatever it was. Um, my mind would always talk my gut out of it, I guess you could say. And I think that's one thing that I, I wish I would have learned earlier is that your, your gut is a lot smarter than you give it credit for. Um, and, and just, um, in, in a lot of situations saying yes, instead of no, I know looking back, um, anything in my life that I would have changed or anything that I've regrets for, I would have, uh, if I could have changed things, it's far more, I would have said yes into the, the cases that I wish I would have said no. So going back, that's what it, you know, what uh, I think it, I would change. Um, you know, a good example is when, you know, and I think Joe has helped me realize that. Um, a good example of that is the, the summer that we moved. So of course, we're setting up a new yard. We're setting up, you know, a new life here. And we decide to take a four-day holiday. Um, so in that, we were visiting some friends, some outside of livestock industry friends, but also um, we were making a couple stops at uh, Gelby Breeders, who are also very good friends of ours, a couple different stops, um, from, you know, one being one of my oldest Gelby friends and, and then some others that are, you know, a little newer. But on that trip, you know, there was a time in my life where I was said, you know what, there's far too much to do here. Like, we were setting up, like a bunch of corrals and we're setting up a water system and we're you know, doing all these things to take a holiday is absolutely ridiculous. But instead we went and on that trip, um, we found one of our major donors, our Baja cow, um, while we were at our really good friends, James and Shayla's. And that cow really was, has been a major part of our program since then. Um, you know, and if we, and if I would have listened to my head instead of my gut, 
that was telling me, you know what, there's too much to do at home. You know, we wouldn't have never found her and we would never been on to go on that adventure where, you know, we won, um, you know, we won a couple of shows with her as a pair and then we went on and we made some major success with her progeny. And, uh, you know, that, that adventure wouldn't have, and that also it was a good financial investment too, but that never would have happened if I would have listened to my head instead of my gut. So. That's a really good answer. Well done. Everyone should like it one. <laughs> um, you know, Cody, thanks for asking this question because Aaron and I have discussed this a lot uh, since you sent this list of questions to us. And the one I've landed on is if I can go back and be 18, and sidebar, I never would. I love where I'm at in my life, and I would never go back to any point in my life other than the one I'm at. But if I were 18 again, I would love to know that you can be more than one thing. You are not defined by one thing in your life. When I was 18, I was on my way to the States on a track and cross-country scholarship. Um, I was competing at a national level in athletics, and I thought that's all I could be. And so I cut a lot of ties to my egg world because I was leaving the farm, and I didn't think at the time that I could be involved in agriculture and go to the States to run and be a teacher. And I didn't think that I would be ever, ever able to come back to the farm. And, you know, if I, hindsight 2020, I wish that I would have sort of left some doors open, um, knowing that in your life, you can have different, different roles and have different interests. And just because you're in agriculture doesn't mean you need to only be interested in agriculture. You can, you know, be, want to travel. You can be into to sports and athletics. You can be into the arts. You can, you can be anything you want and still be in agriculture. And I wish I had known that 20 years ago. I love that. I think that so many times we do get in this lane, especially, and it's really because of judgy people, right? You know, it's like people, you're not, you're not ag enough or you're not athletic enough or you're not whatever enough. And, and it makes you feel like you have to be categorized as one thing. And to be honest, that, that kind of small minded, small minded mentality uh, really holds you back. And I think it holds you back within the career that you end up choosing. A lot of my marketing strategies uh, come from outside of the egg industry. Uh, we do not know everything in the egg industry, and especially when it comes to marketing livestock. In fact, I think in the marketing world in general, we're lagging way behind. You know, podcasts came a long time ago to help market products. I um, mean, you know, in reality, Ag just really jumped onto that in the past year or two. So I think stepping outside of your operation for other passions can only help uh, build your career in what you're working on currently. So I love that you said that. I love both of your guys' advice a lot. So with that being said, it has been an incredible episode. I appreciate you guys coming on. I think that there's a lot more similarities between the Canadian cattle industry and the U.S. cattle industry than we realize. I will be entirely honest. Like, my knowledge is so limited. I didn't even realize it was called provinces. I think that's very exotic and sexy. I like that way more than states. Uh, so that's cool. 
Um, all I knew about Canadians was they could way out drink me back in the day at Nile when Northline was still like Jaden uh, and John and stuff. I met them down there. That was embarrassing for me. Like, cause you know, we think we can drink, you know, it's like, Oh yeah, I can drink a lot of whiskey. It's fine. Um, I cannot, I learned that we did flip cup. Uh, we got, it handed to us and when my friend Carrie Clift is getting out drank, uh, you know, like, all right, we're on different levels here. Um, and and we did that and then John whooped my ass at Indian leg wrestling. So uh I knew that you guys were all badasses and this has just confirmed it for me. I love your guys' enlightened view. And so I encourage everybody out there, um like like I said, don't stay in your bubble. If you like Gelt V or you like any breed for that of cattle or livestock for that matter, uh, call these guys. I have learned so much just in this episode that I'm going to implement in my sheep program. Let's cross some barriers and some boundaries and some borders here uh, and make everybody stronger. So make sure that you reach out to the two of them. Uh, thank you guys so much for being on. Yeah, thanks, Cody. We really, really appreciate it. We, we love talking about this stuff and um, both sharing our story and we really enjoyed your, the first two episodes that you've got you, you've got on it's helped pass some time when we're traveling and um, we really appreciate your program and what you're doing and we really need to uh, get together face to face sometime because we know so many of the same people north and south of the border and we could have one hell of a flip cup tournament uh, I'm thinking yes to that it's time that we have a little trans border flip cup tournament um little kiki i'm into that idea 100 so thank you guys wow well i hope you guys all got as much out of that as i did what an episode i think they touched on so many things such an evolved program in a mindset of looking at marketing cattle and really just raising cattle in general again thank you to joe and aaron what an episode Make sure you guys come back next time. We've got some really exciting things coming up. Um, until next time, y'all stay classy. Mama said I'd end up train their trash. If I stayed the road I was on. The star beer and Jake Hooker's tunes sure have. Keep me keeping on.